Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators on Innovators series. In this episode, Trump Industry Manager for Aerospace and Medical Eliana Fu sits down with Paul Gradle, a Principal Engineer at NASA, to discuss additive manufacturing's role in space exploration. Prior to Trump, Eliana worked with additive manufacturing technologies in her roles at SpaceX and Relativity Space, while Paul has led several projects across NASA relating to the additive manufacture of liquid rocket combustion devices. Throughout the episode, Eliana and Paul discuss NASA's application of 3D printing, the importance of space exploration, inspiring the next generation of aerospace engineers, and the value of mentorship. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Well, hi Paul, it's so great to see you. You too, Eliana, how are you doing? I'm absolutely wonderful today. Um, I'm so glad to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. And it's uh, always good to see you and uh, get together to talk about some of our favorite topics, um, additive manufacturing and space exploration. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, great to geek out with fellow uh, additive enthusiasts. Well, maybe we should take the tell the people back home a little bit about who we are and why we're talking today. Yeah, sounds great. You want to go first on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Eliana Fu. Um, I'm industry manager for aerospace and medical at Trump. Um, I am a titanium metallurgist by training. I got my master's and PhD at Imperial College in UK, but now I live in the US. I recently moved back to my house in Henderson, Nevada. So I'm working for from home for Trump. Great. So I, I work in a component development group at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, and we are responsible for liquid rocket engine components, everything from combustion chambers to injectors, ignition systems, nozzles. Um, and we work the entire life cycle uh, of components from design, analysis, manufacturing, and hot fire testing, uh, making smoke and fire. Uh, we do most of this at NASA Marshall, but we also work with a variety of industry and commercial space uh, and academia uh, counterparts to advance a lot of these uh, various technologies. Yeah, and commercial space is actually how we first met, isn't it? Yeah, it's been uh, a few years and you know, I think um, a lot of the work that we do at NASA, one of our goals is to try to get it out there, do materials development, process uh, advancements, work different component designs. And then the intent is hopefully commercial space to pick that up and run with it. Uh, one of our main goals is to see flight infusion applications uh, and getting that call from you was, was pretty exciting, you know, years back and some of the interest of the work that we were doing, because I think as engineers, we want to see our work used and not just uh, sitting on shelves um, somewhere. So, you know, being able to work with you uh, early on, you know, at Relativity and looking at some of the uh, Copper alloys, you know, is a potential um, infusion point for some of the applications and looking at other materials and talking processes, um, you know, was a good start to our uh, relationship. I know we've talked a lot since then in, in various things. Yeah, and um, you mentioned relativity space, so I should tell the viewers back home that, um, yeah, I was a senior engineer for additive processes, and I was also part of the materials and processes team at relativity space back in the early days. And that's how we got in touch, because um, for people who don't know, relativity space are actually trying to be the first to launch a fully 3D printed rocket, which is uh, very exciting. And it also meant there are a lot of unknown things about using different additive processes where it makes sense, different materials because they're trying to achieve different things. 
Um, so different additive processes such as the WAM process, the wire arc additive process for the tanks and barrels and large sections. And then 3D printing, let's say laser AM, so uh, laser powder bed fusion or laser metal fusion, as Trump calls it, um, for some of the maybe um, more demanding um, applications like rocket engines. And then even um, DED processes, which Trump calls LMD. So that's directed energy deposition or laser metal deposition, um, just using blown powder for larger structures where you can actually print faster. So looking at combination of all of those different things and even things that you know are, are still uh, things like electron beam with wire or laser with wire, all those things are additive processes and stuff that I never even touched, like maybe even binder jet or some of those other things that could help you in the future. So basically, you know, that was the beginning of a long conversation on to what material makes sense, what process makes sense, what are you trying to achieve in your structure, how many times you expect this structure to survive, does it only have to survive, you know, um, like a burst test or um, a hot fire test, or does it actually have to be reusable? So all of those questions we're still trying to find the answers to. I think it's a really interesting place where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. And and at NASA, we're really trying to be a central source of information um, for that. So we're not focused on a specific alloy or a specific process. Uh, we're really trying to investigate all of the different metal AM processes. And you mentioned a handful of them. And I think there's you know somewhere close to a dozen metal AM processes you talked powder bed fusion and DED, there's a lot of the different uh, solid state processes, cold spray, the added friction stir, deposition, um, and the ultrasonic AM. And we've been exploring a lot of those because uh, each one of those results in, you know, different microstructure, different properties. Um, and of course, you know, you go to vendors and they're going to tell you um, you know, information about their process or their properties on that. But we want to, you know, gather data and provide data to industry to help with some of those traits. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that all those different processes that you mentioned, the different additive processes, you know, they're all very complementary each other and they all exist for a reason. There's advantages and disadvantages um, of each of those. And I'm sure we're going to talk a lot of that because uh, you know, that that's um, challenging to demystify some of the different processes, um, you know, and why you trade for one uh, versus the other and the scale of each of these and some are better suited for certain alloys, um, you know, versus, versus others on that. But again, one of our goals at NASA is trying to uh, produce some of that data and, and disseminate some of that data. So we've written a lot of papers and uh, presentations, you know, to help educate um, on that. And I think one thing that I usually say when we talk additive is, um, you know, make sure that you need additive. Uh, you know, it's another manufacturing process. And I think there's still uh, a lot of trades that need to be completed before you specifically say, yes, I want to use additive for this part. Uh, I know that you come from a you know, traditional manufacturing background as well. So you have a good understanding of that. And again, that's something that we always emphasize. There's a lot of great manufacturing processes and additive may not be the best one um, in some cases, but when, when it does make sense, you know, certainly we wanna um, apply it methodically and intentionally, you know, and make sure that we understand the entire life cycle uh, of additive manufacturing. Yeah, and I think that's really important, like choosing the right process for the right application. And then, you know, some of those other limiting factors are why, you know, when you speak to somebody and they kind of don't really understand, why can't you just 3D print that? And the answer could be very complicated and it's simple answer could be straight up, there's no material. The material isn't available in the product form that you want it for additive manufacturing. And so, uh, I think people need to actually step back and then ask themselves, is that even the right process for me? Am I actually doing this the right way? Um, one of the things I learned when I worked 
at the titanium company, I worked for Timet for eight years. And um, that's very traditional billet bar sheet plate ingot forgings, castings type of uh, product, their mill product. Um, the fastest way that people would know in those days to get a component is just to take a block of titanium and machine it. And that's absolutely the worst thing that you can do because the material is so expensive. And if you just thought about it in a different way, there's a, probably a better process or a better way to approach making that part whether it be forging or casting, now we've got additive manufacturing, you can add that to the mix too. You can even do hybrid of doing additive on top of a casting or additive on top of a forging or anything like that, or using additive to join uh, two bits of material together that have been made in different ways. That's still additive, it's not subtractive. And so, that's one of the first things that I learned. Another thing that I learned when I was actually working at SpaceX um, was also, you know, the language of which you speak is all material science. And it doesn't even matter if it's titanium, which is my preference, but it, it could be nickel-based, it could be copper, it could be stainless steel or refractory material. It's all same material science and metallurgy. So if you've got the fundamental of that, you kind of know what's going on on a, a deeper microstructural level. Right. So I, I think when we look at additive, you know, you're you're totally correct on that, that we evaluate, does it make sense for the application? You know, is there a traditional manufacturing process or another manufacturing process, an additive process, a hybrid process? So we tend to look at a few things. First thing that I look at is, is generally part complexity. And most aerospace parts are fairly complex. You're trying to reduce weight. They have internal channels or passages um, on that just because we're trying to reduce mass uh, on that. So you know, there's a lot of cases where additive does make sense from a complexity uh, perspective. But then we also look at the alloy is, again, a lot of aerospace parts, um, we're using alloys that are very challenging to machine or to process or take a long time. Often you have very long lead times, you know, a forging or a casting might take many months or sometimes um, maybe more than a year uh, on that. And then of course the processing economics. So looking at the uh, cost and schedule associated with that. If I'm trying to reduce the number of parts, if we have a lot of examples on injectors for liquid rocket engines that were made with 200 parts that we braze together and now we're able to print them in a couple pieces. So I, I reduce a lot of that processing complexity uh, that goes with that. And of course, there's a lot of cost advantages of that as well. Uh, so Labor, that's, that's generally- overhead, all that kind of stuff, even um, people um, making manufacturing errors and quality issues, you can eliminate a lot of those flaws that way as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. So we we look at all of those uh, when we're trying to trade. And you know, again, I think it's trying to break through some of the hype of additive. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot of um, it's a mainstream word now, which is fantastic that you know you can ask almost anybody and they they know generally what 3d printing um is but trying to break through some of that hype again and make it real and have people apply intentionally and understanding why they're using it and i think that's one of the things that we've been emphasizing that that you mentioned you know earlier is about the process selection you said that usually the alloy is one of the first criteria for selecting a process and and i agree with that because certain processes um, you know, some of the processes where you're melting material um, may not be the best option compared to a solid state process. So, yes, each of the processes, um, DED, powder bed fusion, the, the solid state processes, there's different alloys that are used for different processes. And then we also look at the overall size is one of the other, you know, early criteria on that. Um, powder bed fusion you can make very complex parts, but you're going to be limited in the overall size. I know there's machines out there now that are, you know, a meter by a meter. Um, 
for so, but some of our parts were looking are several meters in diameter and several meters in height. So that's we tend to look at some of the DED processes. But then we also need to trade part complexity. You know, there's certain processes that I'm using as a forging or a casting replacement. So I have um, lower complexity uh, in that, and I'm just trying to deposit a lot of material uh, in that. You know, some of the processes, like you know, additive friction stir deposition, and some of the WAM processes, you can do 20, 30, 40, you know, 50 pounds per hour. Um, on that where powder bed fusion, you know, you're 0 0.1, 0 0.2 pounds per hour on that. So, you know, deposition rate, but, but with that, I think there's an inverse of complexity, you know, deposition rate, uh, I can do a really high deposition rate, but really I'm start, starting to lose the complexity uh, on that. So we look yeah, at part complexity, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Feature resolution. And then there's a lot of other things, you know, that we consider, like like you mentioned, the alloy selection. So looking at feedstock, like can I get the feedstock um, parameters, and then of course all the post processing, you know, as well. So again, I think having people understand why they're selecting certain processes and not just selecting a process because, you know, it's readily available or you know they have it in their shop, it may not be the best and most economical one. Uh, and then you mentioned microstructure too, you know, which is something that can be overlooked sometimes that every one of the processes results in a different microstructure. A solid state process, you know, has more refined grain structure in it where some of the melting processes, I may get, you know, enlarged grains on that, which results in different properties. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're trying to um, push through and educate on you know, is, again, is to have people understand the microstructure a lot better of additive processes and the resulting properties from that. So just because I have properties for laser powder bed fusion doesn't mean that I can use those same properties for laser powder DED or, bl you know, blown powder DED on that. Each one is very unique. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I, I was thinking about you said something about the um, uh, feedstock as well. Because in this time that we're living, where we have like su uh, supply chain issues and constrained supply chain, I mean, I'm I'm even thinking. I I, I have been thinking for a long time now about even um, you know the scarcity of the materials, where they have to come from. Do they have to be shipped from overseas? I mean, that's something. Well, obviously, when I worked at the titanium company, we had. Um, you know, lots of uh, issues with, but also we had to worry about things like piracy, you know, people committing acts of piracy on the high seas and things like that. And we've got um, all kinds of things going on right now. I mean, in the titanium days, we had to actually get certificates to sign off to say that our materials do not contain any conflict minerals. And so a lot of people in additive uh, these days don't even think about those things because it, it, the thoughts never cross their mind until suddenly they can't get the material. And it's like, oh, you went down a road where you chose material that only comes from one region, which is now in some kind of conflict zone. And that, that's potentially bad, it's disastrous in fact. Uh, for everybody involved. So it's, it's kind of um, an interesting topic that I think also bears some consideration um, when trying to make those design decisions as well. You know, where, where does the material come from? Who are my suppliers? Can I go and, um, you know, visit my suppliers and do quality audits, um, make sure the material is consistent and that I'm not going to get any interruptions in my supply chain that will affect my lead time because that all, is all going to affect my launch window. Right, right. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the uh, advantages and disadvantages of additive sometimes is the feedstock is we are able to get feedstock quicker in many cases, you know, powder or a uh, wire form. Uh, on that, but also developing custom alloys has has been a challenge, you know, for us in trying to set up those supply chains and making sure that they're meeting our requirements and, you know, we have the, the quality uh, associated with that because ultimately all of that is going into your end part. 
uh, on that. And I think one example is the GR-COP alloys that NASA developed, which is a copper chrome niobium material that we use for uh, combustion chambers, high heat flux, you, know, you need high strength on those, high conductivity is for many years, it really wasn't accessible because of supply chain. There weren't um, companies that were printing it uh, commercially. Uh, it was very difficult to get the powder. It was very expensive to get the powder. And again, that was something that in our NASA role that we had to work with the supply chain to set up um, powder atomization on that, working with a variety of vendors to make sure that they could, uh, again, produce it to our specs and making sure that you know oxygen content was low and that we weren't having uh, challenges with the atomization nozzles, you know, causing trace elements um, in there. Because again, any anything that's part of your feedstock is going to go into your your part. And one thing that we always talk about, you know, from the certification perspective, is the roles have shifted uh, quite a bit. You know, so before we would get a certificate of conformance from you know, the titanium plant or the uh, the forging or the casting vendor saying that we produced this material per these specs and it meets that. Well, now we get a feedstock and now you're producing the material or melting the material, consolidating the material in place. And now we're responsible, um, you know, for all those material properties uh, on that. So you know, the supply chain and kind of the um, how we approach that has has shifted uh, quite a bit as well. And you know, again, we're responsible for ensuring that the feedstock, um, you know, is, is really meeting the quality requirements because any impurities and any you know, issues with that, it, it just gets amplified when you go to print it uh, in, in your part. And, you know, we've had our fair share of uh, print failures and, you know, even challenges on the test stand where we've seen defects or uh, other issues that propagate through from the you know, supply chain, such as is the raw feedstock on that. Yeah, so in order to understand all these things, all these issues, you're not just being a material scientist, but you're also being an additive technologist and you're also being a supplier quality engineer. So you have to do all of those jobs, as it were, in one, because the, and, and you also have to look at the economics of the uh, supply as well. So you have to, somebody is doing a cost analysis on whether it was cheaper to make this part by a forging or a casting, or shall I just machine it from a block or just print the thing? Can you even do that? Where can you do that? Where can you get it heat treated? What are the logistics in shipping it all over the country to get it heat treated and so on? And so when you look at that, you, you really then have to ask yourself, okay, I really need to choose the right process for this part, for this job. And then all of that adds up into whether you're gonna make your flight, your stated flight date on time. And so, you know, I was thinking about that the other day because I saw an update um, on the Artemis um, program and I was like, wow, this is going to fly pretty soon, like sooner than we expected. So I was thinking, how did we how did we get to this point? Where did um, actually maybe you can tell me, Paul, where did your interest in space actually start? So I started my career uh, back at NASA Glenn Research Center back in early 2000s uh, as an intern. And I was working on the fluids and combustion facility, which is one of the racks that is flying on International Space Station. And I remember going uh, to Glenn and you know putting on one of the um, the bunny suits in, in the white room and, and clean room and going in and looking at the hardware. And I think you're just in awe of this is going to be flying in space soon. Um, and, you know, this is when we're still building out a lot of the different research uh, facilities and in International Space Station thinking this can be flying in space and there's going to be groundbreaking research that will be conducted um, on some of this. So I think that you know latched me pretty early in terms of where i wanted to go um with my career but of course i think we all have our stories as a child you know i remember 
um, watching space shuttle launches. And those were just definitely inspirational, you know, to our generation. Uh, and, and I remember watching the Challenger um, and the accident at the time. And I was six at the time uh, that that happened. But still, like that memory is very vivid to me. So I think as, you know, a nation and as a uh, species, you know, the whole planet that spaceflight is one of those things that people seem to come together on. Um, and to me, that is really exciting. Um, so, you know, for me, the job that I do now is, uh, of course, a career, but also a hobby, in a sense. So I love rocket engines. I love uh, space flight, but I love manufacturing. Um, and this goes back to even in high school, I worked in a plastic injection molding plant and I was doing uh, CAD uh, drawings for them, computer aided design. Uh, and I didn't even have my driver's license at the time. I think I was 15 or so. So my mom would drive me to work. And, you know, I loved being in the factory and um, smelling shop oil and seeing parts made. So I've always had this strong interest in manufacturing. So being able to marry manufacturing with spaceflight and, and rocket engines uh, really is, is a passion uh, for me. You know, and it's, of course, it's gotten better too, in a sense, with additive manufacturing, because now we're able to make parts very quickly and get them on the test stand. And one of the examples that I love to give was early in my career. So again, back in the early 2000s, when I started at NASA Marshall, is we would run a handful of test programs a year. We might be running three or five programs and we are always limited by hardware. It would take six months, 12 months, 18 months to make some of this hardware with traditional manufacturing uh, processes. And that's always where you have your challenges, right? The design goes easy, you go to manufacture it and, you know, oops, things don't meet the drawings or we had this issue or we have repairs on it. So we were very limited on the number of programs we run. Well, now we run 15 or 20 programs a year and we have an 18 month backlog for rocket engine testing because we have so much hardware and it's all because of additive is a lot of our programs, we will make two, three, four combustion chambers as backups or injectors um, on this. And we're just not able to keep up with, with all the testing. So that's exciting. And I think that is, you know, one of the proofs of additive in itself is we're able to go through these design uh, fail fixed cycles very quickly and make design changes and prove things out um, very quickly. And I think you know, we started some of this conversation out talking commercial space. And, you know, I love the time that we're in right now because I think there's a lot of commercial space companies uh, that exist or are able to accelerate their development because of additive manufacturing. Now, it may not be, um, you know, the final solution, like they might do some of the early development work using an additive part and then ultimately, you know, going into production, it might make more sense to use a traditional process where you're making dozens or hundreds uh, of something. But again, you can get on the test stand a lot quicker, um, you know, and I guess that goes back to, um, you know, some of my reasons for coming to NASA, um, and, you know, and some of the inspiration is, is being able to see rocket engines test and then ultimately, you know, seeing, yes, this is going to go into space. We're going to launch these payloads and, you know, do this groundbreaking uh, research. That, that is exciting and that uh, definitely motivates me every day. Yeah, I remember when um, people didn't really um, know the term additive manufacturing, but they called it rapid prototyping. But actually, it's the same thing. You you are doing a rapid prototype. It's just uh, you, the method in which you're using is like a laser ray method or an electron beam or plasma or whatever it is. So, um, but you can see I'm on I'm on the bridge of the Rosinante from the Expanse. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Um, like. You, like you, I was also very much a fan of watching NASA back when I was a kid. But I was also inspired by like Star Trek and Star Wars and Babylon 5 and that kind of thing. So I was always interested in it. And 
you know, years later, but I grew up in UK. So there wasn't like a big space program in UK. Years later, I moved to the US and then finally I got my US passport. And then I was able to work very freely at um, SpaceX with no issues. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it is like a dream come true for so many people that grew up thinking, oh, well, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever get to work on a space program. But with the commercial space like Virgin, SpaceX, um, Relativity, Blue Origin, everybody, there's a chance for you know, kids, especially young people, to achieve their dreams of working on a product that will go to space. And um, I think that, like you said, this is a really exciting time that we live in, because who would have imagined it? Like, I could not have imagined, like, uh, 20 years ago, um, that I would be working in this industry and working on products that go to space or that will one day go to space or working on the development of things that fly and things that are going to um, help, you know, the next generation of uh, space explorers or help humanity become an, a multiplanetary species. And so I, I want to tell you a really funny story that I had when I first, um, and it's very personal as well, so if you don't mind me sharing some personal detail, when I first moved to um, LA to work at SpaceX, I went on a, a like a match.com date, you know, with this one guy who was like not my type. And he was kind of like a surfer dude. And then he was asking me what I did for my job. I said, oh, I work at SpaceX. And then he, he asked me what that entailed. And I told him some uh, basic detail. I didn't tell him everything, but I just sort of like told him a basic outline. And then he was like silenced. And then he was, he was like, he looked at me like he was really fascinated. He goes, that's incredible. I've never been on a date with anybody like you. And then he suddenly turned, he goes, I think we should not be exploring other planets. We should be solving our problems on earth first. And I was really taken aback. So I was like, oh, check, please. <laughs> but you're going you're gonna to run into people like that. You, go, you are going to meet people who think that we have no business um, exploring our inner solar system, let alone going to other, other worlds and other solar systems. So what do you say to people like that? So I think at, at NASA, we're always uh, challenged you know, with that. And again, one of our goals is to help inspire um, you know, inspire current generations, future generations of dreamers. And I think as a, you know, species, that is one of the things that we need to hold on tight um, because, you know, we don't know what's out there. And, you know, as, a, as humans, I think we want to explore, you know, and understand better you know where we came from and what else is is in our universe um, on that and i think nasa does a great job at at doing that you know and, and really space agencies around the world you know again have come together um, and allow us to put humans on orbit for six months and 12 months i mean that's fascinating you know the the research and um, you know, all the nations coming together on International Space Station is, is really a fantastic project. Going back to the moon, you know, and setting up permanent habitats um, there and then ultimately going to Mars. And I think that's something that, you know, every young child is inspired by. And again, I think that is part of our role is to keep those dreams alive, you know, and, and let people wonder and you know imagine like okay i can be the next astronaut um and i can go explore other planets and you know i think with that we see all kinds of new technology developed and that is something else that i i get excited about working you know at nasa is you have problems that you have to go solve and we need a a new alloy for a harsh environment or we have to go develop some certain process and we develop those processes and use that for launch vehicles um, but then you know several years later or a decade later they use that technology in something completely different in in medical or a different field and 
you know, I love seeing the growth and the infusion of that technology. So I believe by being explorers and developing those technologies that we are bringing those technologies back to earth and, and helping to solve problems on, on earth. So I disagree with uh, surfer dude, um, you know, <laughs> on your date. And I think that, uh, I disagreed with him too, which is why I, I exited right pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, you're right. Uh, we should be working to inspire the next generation. And we, but, you know, all these things do teach us about our environment. Like we can use satellite probes to study how glaciers melt or how the sea levels rise and fall as climate change occurs and things like that. So it is telling us something and we are learning things and we're learning things about ourselves too. But I think I, I, I like the aspect of um, being able to inspire people because um, I think that inherently the human species is a curious one. We do want to find out what's out there. We do want to leave our homes and our, our safety and security. And we, we do want to push our limits and see what, what we're made of. And then whatever we learn, bring that back to hopefully make the world a better place. But um, seriously, but I, I do think that... Um, there's lots of things that people are doing that maybe aren't being celebrated as much as they should be. And so they should be in the conversation more. How do you think that we can like inspire more of the next generation, especially in STEM fields? Um, one of the things that we did when I was at Relativity was work a lot with the sort of uh, middle school kids and that age where they can be inspired and then realize that this is a career op option for you, um, especially for me, middle school girls of color, which is at a certain age, they don't go down an engineering or a technical path and they choose some other paths because they don't even know that these routes are open to them. So um, what would you say to, you know, uh, try to capture that kind of potential that might go away? Right. Ed education, you know, STEM is definitely high on our list. It's NASA is, again, we want to inspire that next generation of explorers, but we also want to train, um, you know, the, the next workforce that's going to be building upon all of our work. And we try to do as much as we can uh, to get information out there, you know, whether it be middle schools, high schools, we get involved in a lot of science competitions and robotics and uh, student launch initiatives. Um, we're heavily involved with uh, academia, college level that NASA sponsors a lot of research projects. And I work with probably 20 or 30 PhD students at various universities. and. Um, invest in mentorship you know with with them and it's interesting because we have a lot of regular meetings and i don't treat those meetings any different than i do you know internal nasa meetings is i want uh, you know students to understand the 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 process flows and the economic side of it because in engineering school you seem like we're taught a lot of the technical aspects of things. And sometimes we're not always taught, well, you need to look at the economic side and the programmatic side and the risk side of things. Um, you know, so educating uh, a lot of that. And I think, you know, additive in particular is it's really easy for um, students to get excited about, you know, middle school, high school students, because they can go make a design. And a lot of high schools now have plastic printers so they can hold their part in their hand. And I think that is definitely inspiring um, in itself. You know, for colleges uh, and universities, they're doing a lot of uh, development with, with metal additive manufacturing. And again, we're sponsoring uh, a lot of that through, through various grants and, and contracts. Um, but those are gonna be the next generation that's working at NASA and is gonna be our colleagues uh, on that. So. We're trying to uh, provide as much education as we can through journal articles and papers and presentations. We teach a lot of uh, classes, um, undergrad and graduate classes, where we'll do, you know, one or two sessions for a course and talk about here's here's why we're doing additive. You know, here's the applications of it. 
And I think students can start to make the connection saying, well, I'm, I'm making these tensile specimens all day long. And now I understand why it's important because you're showing me rocket engines and you know, the importance of microstructure material properties that go into that. So we try to do those, those types of um, you know, things as well. And we actually just completed a, about a three-year effort writing a textbook. Uh, and this is, will be in print. It's in print now. It should come out in mid-August. And again, the objective of the textbook was to help educate students you know, to apply additive manufacturing methodically and intentionally, and also allow uh, industry to, to use this as well. So we're all talking the same language uh, on some of this because I think with a lot of the processes you know there's still different names for some of them and you know people have different concepts of what additive uh, is and I think even even you and I probably do when I say additive you're probably thinking of certain process uh, but you know, I think we want to again educate and, and show people that it's it's a generic term and there's a lot to additive and that's probably one of my focus areas too when we talk about you know additive and education is is a lot of people focus on the process itself right i go build a part and that is the process but i think to be successful and additive and train the next generation workforce you know and even some of the current workforce on this is understanding that entire process and that includes the design and the pre-processing the feedstock, which we talked earlier, the processing parameters are really important. And then post-processing, I think, is, is one of the most critical aspects of additive manufacturing. You can't be successful without post-processing uh, on this. And then, of course, understanding how your part goes into service. So understanding that entire life cycle. And you're not going to get additive right, you know, without making sure that each of those steps are completed in a certain sequence and that I'm, you know, understanding the physics of each one of those steps. And I have to design for it early in my conceptual design. And, you know, a lot of the lessons that we put in the book um, were hard lessons learned because we failed a lot of parts. We would go make this complex part and we would, um, you know, build it and we'd remove the powder and then we'd bring it to our machinist and he'd say, I don't know how to machine this thing. Um, you know, there's no way to, to hold on to this part. Or we would design a part and uh, take it to, to one of the machines and we'd, we'd build it. And then our engineer would say, I don't know how to get the powder <laughs> out of this. You didn't include the proper powder removal ports on that. So again, all that has to be designed very early um, in, in that process. And you have to think about each one of those steps. And it kind of goes back in what you were saying earlier, that the roles, uh, some of the traditional roles in engineering have all somewhat merged together in additive manufacturing. So I think with students, we're not just teaching them you know, to be a design engineer or a manufacturing engineer, a quality engineer of a metallurgist is additive has sort of morphed all of those together. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of nuances in the process. So for instance, you know, we want our designers to understand when I have a thick section and a thin section on my part, the microstructure might vary there and I might get different properties um, from that. And again, they need to understand machining. How am I going to hold this part? How am I going to get the powder out? How am I going to do inspections? You know, on that, that's a definitely a key area in aerospace is we need to make sure that the parts meet the geometry and the microstructure and, you know, the, the quality that we need for aerospace um, parts, because I think first first and foremost, we have to keep our astronauts safe. You know, that is, is number one uh, goal with with all of our missions. So I need to make sure that I'm applying the additive process properly and you know that I can inspect parts and understand that uh, what I'm what I think I'm building is what I'm actually getting we, we often say that complexity uh, is the inverse of inspectability because I can make these really complex parts uh, and then our 
non-destructive evaluation engineers or in inspector like we we don't know how to inspect these because there's so many features in here uh you know it's going to be really challenging on that so i think all of this is is definitely an area that we're trying to educate you know and and we find a lot of different opportunities whether it be teaching classes publishing books um you know providing courses or we bring in tours to nasa occasionally and just you know, having middle school students or high school students or university students get their hands on parts. I think that is something that's that's really inspiring as well. Yeah, and I, I also like what you said about the um, education of the current workforce, because there's so much potential in people who have traditional skills that actually don't even know that there are jobs available for them in, in additive and with some little bit of education maybe some certifications and things like that some of it's on the job training as well but i think being open-minded to the idea is you know you can learn something else as well i mean you know and people say well I, i'm a bit too old to, to learn that actually you're not you, you you can carry on learning throughout your career because something new is always happening so if you keep yourself open to that possibility um, the rewards could be amazing, could be immense there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as we grow in our careers too, that you find the value of mentorship and, you know, being able to uh, provide somebody the tools and maybe get them head in the right direction and then see them do amazing things is extremely rewarding uh, in itself. You know, I'm, I've found myself in that stage, you know, you gave a um, personal example, I know that we, we work with a lot of universities and one of the universities that we've been working with doing a lot of additive development, uh, has been UTEP. And there was a, um, master student that I mentored for a couple years, did fantastic work and graduated, you know, was looking for jobs and we knew he was going to fall in a, a really fantastic role in additive. And he did and sent me a personal note and said, you know, I was um, the first person in my family to get a degree, went on to get a master's degree. And now I believe is going to be, you know, one of the experts in the field on additive. Um, and that itself is extremely rewarding, you know, on a, a personal level, um, professional, you know, to, to be able to see, these people, um, you know, these students go and and do amazing things um, in, in additive. And, and definitely, I think mentorship is something that every engineer should be involved in uh, at, at some point in their career, because you learn a lot about yourself. Um, but again, you're also training, you know, people to to go do great things. Yeah, and I think another good point that you made about mentorship um, is you can even be mentored by someone who is on a similar level to you. You don't have to be mentored by somebody from up high. You, you know, it doesn't have to be like a manager level. You, you can still grow and develop as a person from somebody who's alongside you. So, for example, I'm helping someone right now who I would say, um, I'm not, I'm definitely not their manager, but I'm helping them. And they are the change that I've seen in just the couple of months that we've been working on this one thing together, and I'm encouraging them. It's, it's astonishing. And, you know, they didn't even know, like, I would say they didn't even know they had it in them, but they, they weren't aware that all these things were open to them. And then now they're looking at things with a new vision or different eyes or something because somebody else has just come along to provide some extra commentary about things or avenues or uh, things that they want to achieve or accomplish or ways to look at things or ways to get things done or whatever it is. Um, and it's, it's I mean, the, the subject matter is additive, but the way that you approach it is human to human. And so I think that that's like, uh, that's a really cool thing to have seen and be a part of. So I'm, I'm pretty happy on, on that respect as well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on that. And, and 
you know, I learn stuff from our interns that come in all the time and they yes, have new ideas. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You know, Relativity kind of, Space was actually also started by two people who were interns. So one right. intern at SpaceX and one intern at Blue Origin. So, you know, um, interns these days are amazing people. They don't just push bits of paper around. They actually do real meaningful work and they are going to be the leaders and, um, you know, CEOs and uh you know, leaders and uh, business owners and entrepreneurs that are going to lead us into this next sort of wave of, well, they already are leading us in this next wave of, let's say, commercial and also governmental cooperation, I'd say, in space exploration. Yeah, and I think that, you know, to, to kind of bring it back, I think Additive has helped enable some of that creativity too, is, um, you know, if you've been designing rocket engines for a long time, you know, there's certain rules that we might uh, apply or, you know, maybe we have certain biases that has to be manufactured um, like this. And we get some of our interns come in and say, well, why can't you do this? And sometimes my brain will go, well, because we could never manufacture that. But now we can manufacture some of this stuff or we can use some of that complexity. So there's new designs and new performance that we can get um, out of that and sometimes it's you know intern or co-op ideas uh, just trying to shift you out of your your thinking on that and I think that you know again the the current next generation workforce is going to come up with these new ideas for designs and we're seeing that with some of the topology optimization and the generative design with additive is adding in this uh, complexity and applying, you know, certain constraints to it to to come up with these organic structures. Yeah, or even algorithmic possible. designs and designs that are inspired by machine learning and AI. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's really incredible. So I think that that's a huge opportunity, you know, for growth and additive. And I think the other one that I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier with the GR COP. Um, alloys is just the opportunity for a lot of new materials. So now you have. Now you're uh, talking my language. That's uh, <laughs> something that I'm really excited about. I mean, I keep like, it's like a bee in my bonnet that I have about why are we using materials that were developed 70 years ago? They just happen to be able to be melted and solidified by a laser. So that's a massive, a massive advantage that we have. And we already have thousands of data points on how to make those parts traditionally with those materials. But the new materials, that's what I'm talking about. Like those things are to me as material scientists really exciting. And so, you know, but I'm, I'm sure that that will go hand in hand with the process development. I mean, it has to, it has to. Oh my gosh, Paul, look, we've spoken for like almost an hour. This is incredible. It, it's uh, it's fun again to, to geek out on additive and I'm sure we could talk all day um about this you know there's a lot of a lot of aspects of it a lot of nuances um you know hopefully that uh hopefully again we can inspire the next generation to develop complex designs and new materials and uh, as long as they understand the process and you know apply it uh, methodically and um, intentionally uh, on that yeah where it makes sense yeah sure.